So head to our website to sign up to our mailing list or send your comments to our producers. Not my number though, yeah? All right, bye. <laughs> Welcome to the Jack Jones and Martin Warner Show. Today we're asking, can machines be as creative as humans? Exploring the world of computer-generated art with MIT's Nick Montford. Nick Montford is the MIT professor for digital media. He's the brain behind seven computer-generated books, many computer-generated poems, and is a leading figure in new media. Professor Nick, welcome to the Jax Jones and Martin Warner Show. I guess before we kick off, and we're also going to talk about generative art mm-hmm. uh, or, or perhaps uh, computer art. I think they're used synonymously, but you can you can correct us. Yeah, there's uh, all but, sorts of fine details of terminology we can get into. Did you say you're yeah, writing a okay. book as well? So are you an author as well, Nick? Yes. And I have uh, several books of poetry, many of which are computer generated. And then I have books of scholarship, sort of... Uh, you know, different uh, types of critical, theoretical engagements with digital media or new media. Okay. So before we jump into that, perhaps you can just, um, like in, a, in a couple of minutes, just tell us how you got to this point of, of mm-hmm. being focused on digital media at large, but in particular, generative uh, art. Um, and obviously being a, um, you know, in poetry and and other th- forms of, of media, and, and they also lean towards generative art. Just what's your background, and, and, and why did you end up arriving at this point? Um, for me, uh, I have a long-standing interest, almost since childhood, I'd say, in how computing, language, and literature come together to help us explore things that are culturally resonant, that are meaningful in terms of language, in terms of culture. So when I was growing up, there were these text adventure games, uh, these interactive fiction games, and uh, one of the very uh, famous and top-selling ones was uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which would mm-hmm. be familiar to you as a, as a famous franchise. Um, and these were in different literary genres. They came in you know, mystery, science fiction, fantasy, uh, they were sold in bookstores for a certain period of time. Uh, this was also a time when there were software stores. So you could go to the software store if you wanted to to buy them, or you could go to the bookstore. And they were, for the stuff that you could buy and run on your home computer, they were really pretty advanced types of natural language processing. So they were clearly breaking some boundaries when it came to computing. But they were also literary works that were really compelling. And um, I uh, did some work along these lines myself. I worked on some interactive fiction projects. Um, but I'd say more importantly, interactive fiction is something that sort of gave me permission to see that the literary aspects of a work and the computational aspects of a work fit together. And I'm interested always in the, the cultural implications of computing and in how people use computing creatively, what they do as artists, broadly speaking. You know, we talk about recording recording artists. We talk about, I'm not only talking about visual artists, uh, people who are making creative use of different, different media. Um, and so in a way, uh, what's happening with generative art is people are working as computational artists. They're using computation as a medium. In my own case, I focus on literature and language. So I bring together 
work in the literary arts with work in the computational arts. And, and it, it's probably worth at this point just let's grabbing for, for the listener and viewer, uh, whether they're you know, online on YouTube or, or listening to the extended audio, what generative art means. Mm-hmm. And perhaps also parallel with, 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 with if there is in your mind a distinction between computer-generated art and generative art, so we've got a, a yes. somewhat complete taxonomy. Yes. So um, there is a very complete taxonomy, a very useful one, and very precise, that's given by uh, Margaret Bowden and Ernest Edmonds in their book, From Fingers to Digits. And among the many terms they have, one of them is computer art or C art. One of them is generative art or G art. And then they have computer generative art, CG art. And um, so really when we say when i say generative art when we talk about you know this is a show generative unfoldings is a show of generative art we're talking about computer generative art um right and that is work that is a software system that's the thing that the artwork is just like a painting is you know paint applied to a canvas or or it could be applied to um, a piece of wood or something like that um but in this case we have a software system. That's what the artwork is. And there are certain qualities that it has. Um, it has a degree of autonomy. So it does something to some extent on its own. And interestingly, we want to talk about the generative unfolding show. I know a lot of those pieces are interactive. And Bowden and Edmonds were willing to admit that there was stuff that was interactive that could be CG art, you know, or generative art. Um, but the central examples, the stuff that was most core to their definition was whatever ran on its own. So instead of having the artist right. make something, the artist made a system and that system did something on its own. You kind of forgive me, Nick, for the layman example, but when you're talking about this stuff and computer-generated art, uh, a screensaver, a visualizer, it's, Windows 98, when you play the Windows Media Player, springs to mind. <laughs> screensavers are great examples, I think, right? <laughs> they really um, are, yeah. right? No, yeah. no, no. Those are wonderful examples. And, you know, for instance, the Pipes screensaver yeah. from Windows 95, where those yeah. are. And so think about this in, in distinction from video art. When mm-hmm. you look at it... Um, you might say, well, this is video art because it's a moving image. It's presented on a screen. But video art is a particular closed system. It can run in a loop. It's going to show you the same thing every time. Uh, I don't mean to insult video art. Some of that can be mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. good, radical, and compelling. Sure. You know, but that's what it is. And the screensaver is always producing something new. If you, when that screensaver comes on every time, it's going to show you a different sequence of images because those images are generated. So screensavers are actually great examples, I think. Um, um, And um, the um, and in and in there's also you know there's also groups of uh, uh, screensaver hackers. You know, so uh, Jamie Zarensky uh, creating, you know, screensavers in this, uh, you know, a free software framework 
where people can, you know, remake the window screensavers, but also contribute their own. And there's, and some of the classics, I think of the, of the, um, uh, nineties, um, like the flying toasters screensavers, you know, some of the classics of early computing, right. Are, are works of this sort, right. So they're great. And they're also, I mean, it's even better, um, uh, if they're useless, right? If they actually had a function to keep your monitor from having burn in, then mm-hmm. you could possibly say, oh, well, you know, it's a utility of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I, was al- I was always interested to see, you know, where, where would you find the screensaver shelved in the software sh- store? Um, because uh, there was a category, there are games, and then there, it's not yeah. a game, right? And then there's a category for productivity software. Mm-hmm. It's not productivity software. It's not educational Right, mm-hmm. maybe it's counterproductivity software. So, um, so it's just a, it's it's some some utility. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. it's a type of popular art. Okay, so what it is? I'm I'm about to sum up generative art. Would, oh, that what, quick, huh? Let's see it. Much like uh, you know, you might use paint or other tools or other mediums for generative art. It's the code is the canvas. And yes, do you know, and that's how you communicate through the code, right? Okay. So, Okay, cool. I'm good. I'm good so far. We're, we're, we're going through. I have screensaver. I have code. We're, we're doing well, guys. <laughs> well, and also, and also the, the, the point of departure is that uh, the hands come off the code or come off the keyboard in yes. order to allow it to have some kind of autom- autonomous nature to it. So it, it yeah. creates itself to some degree, right? So it's self-generating, right? Hence the word generative. Is that essential to generative, yeah? That it has to have an AI component? Well, that's, that's yeah, I think uh, what AI is exactly uh, is an interesting question that uh, has a different answer, you know, in 1956 when the term is first used, you know, going through the 50s, 60s, and then today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is an aspect of autonomy. The system does something. It's not simply producing what the author provided instructionally, you know, in exactly the same way. Um, so there is instructional art of the sort that mm-hmm. uh, Saul LeWitt, you know, for instance, was is very famous for devising. Um, but these types of artwork, yeah, I mean, you can think about... Um, you can think about code being the canvas or the paint in this case. Oh, the and, paint. Yeah. yeah. And then also you can think about how um, there are, you know, utilitarian means of painting things. When you paint mm-hmm. your house, you're going to get paint and you're putting it on the surface and, you you know, it's you need to keep the water out. You've got certain utility for it, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, generative art is using that for aesthetic purposes. It's changing the way that it's used. Um, and um, and um, it is useful to think of, I think, generative art as sort of, you know, it's, it's a screensaver off the chain. It's, it's able to do something that's, that's, that uh, takes that in a radical direction. Screensaver is a fantastic example because we've just said it performs some level of utility, right? And that's that, you know, it's there to keep the screen moving and stop burnout, all the rest of it. But um, maybe, maybe enough, so, it, yeah, maybe, right? <laughs> maybe, well, well, and and certainly not today, by the way, in yeah, terms of displays. Right. But 
um, you know, they're pretty much useless. But, but let's just say that was the argument. It would actually say that it wasn't just for pleasure, as in art for the sake of mm. art, that we've created art in this new mechanism. Is the goal, right. in your opinion, of generative art to be anything more than an artistic expression? As a, as, a pr- as a prior coder many, many years ago, and not a particularly good one, but, but I would argue that coding is separate to the enjoyment of art. And, and so but I can argue a can lot of things. But coding can be artistic though, right? If you, well, very, if, yeah, like if you execute a piece of code that's so efficient and, you know, some people would claim that that's art, right? Right. The, que- the, que- the question is, 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 is generative art f- created for the sole purposes of enjoyment or expression or is it is it is it to perform another function because almost there are you jacks i'm a film producer you're an artist yeah right? the first thing i'd say is it's perfectly fine for it to just be art there's nothing wrong with things just being art absolutely right? but then also um there's lots of things that uh, things created as just art uh, do in the world right and so one of the things they do is they have a social function uh, people go to art openings they talk about it in relation to their lives and their culture, right? So it has a social and cultural function, and it gives me the possibilities of seeing something new about my culture and society, my history as an individual. All of these things are directions art can go in, it, not necessary ones, right? I mean, if you have, a, like, sometimes it's nice for the sake of you know, for instance, Jack's right. Having a concert, you see mm-hmm. a bunch of people enjoying themselves. They're all there. It's a social event. So great. You know, that's um, uh, that's something it can do. I, I just thought, I just thought of something, Jack. You're um, you're a little bloody digital. First of all, you're a digital artist, right? Or you hire digital artists. He's got a little miniature digital Jacks that's on a screen behind him with a hundred thousand fans. But that's um, <laughs> that's video art. Because it's no, uh, I'm not. Fi- I'm not finished yet. Oh, no, God. no, no. I agree with that. But here's the thing. Yeah. I'm at no, no, no. I'm going one step further. If you've got your animator to allow him to do things himself autonomously, that would be generative art. I mean, so in- yeah, it's true. Uh, at the moment, he just tells him to walk across the screen. Yeah, if, you, if you become a virtual idol, right? If you become uh, Hatsune Miku, th- then you get to transform yourself. It's sort of a, it's it's like an extropian dream. It's like uploading yourself to the hard drive, right? You become the yeah, uh, the soul yeah. of the of the uh, <laughs> yeah. the visual. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine that. It, there's something about this that just eludes me. Like mm. after you've created the construct, yeah. Uh, so it runs itself afterwards. And does the generative art improve? So see, let, I let me, can't get my head around that. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I don't at all have an answer to it. But I will say, it's not at all hypothetical because um, Harold Cohen developed mm-hmm. a generative artist a system you know he he referred to it as an artist but you can think of it as a generative artwork yeah. aaron and so aaron uh produced drawings um mm-hmm. and uh cohen kept refining it again and again throughout his life and eventually he said oh well you know its use of color is better than mine it's bad be- it's actually better at this aspect of of art and you know we're now in a situation where um, Cohen has died, um, mm-hmm. you know, several years ago, but Aaron still exists, right? What? And is still able to produce artwork, right? And uh, this is so, so surreal, right? So we already, so we have situations like this that that already exist. Now, now Cohen wasn't 
trying to create or in a system that embodies you know himself uh-huh. and his own artistic practice. But there are people right. who, who do that. Some people are trying to create systems that embody their own artistic practice, like Johannes Helden, uh, like making a project that writes like him, you know, and oh. replaces him as a writer. Okay, so so there's now, a, now that's the most powerful function. Is that for vanity or economics or what do you think the purpose of that is? I, I mean, it's sort of like as a computational artist. So you know, there, there's always the the um, the suggestion that they give to uh, writers. They say, write about something you know, right? So if you're a computational artist and you're trying to make a writer. You know, well, program about something you know. Why not make yourself? You know, why? I mean, that's that's the writer you know best, yeah. right? Whoa! But it performs some useful functions, right? Like, um, it's an it's incredible for redundancy, for death in service, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that you I, can live on. Yes. So I think that's right. It it's it depends on whether having an immortal artist, right? Of course, immortal artists just just become they're they're just obsolete for eternity, right? Because you need to be embodied in the present day culture you need to have uh, yeah. relevance to what's going on you need to be part of what's happening it's an incredible question for um for technology and culture if you think so, about it let's, let's just yeah, say we've already we've, we've, we've already gotten from the screensaver to mm. uploading uh, your artistic practice and your consciousness to the computer right just in a, a, a probably about five or ten minutes <laughs> i was gonna say yeah 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 exactly and now we're talking about the future of mankind no i, I what i'm saying is imagine Jack, that all of a sudden technology got so good that you could um, you know, take the embodiment of your art, right? And I'm not sure if you're even – imagine this, that you're not even caught in a time warp, that actually your algorithm is growing as a result of your own artistic design. It's a, it, the way you think about lyrics, the way you think about themes, the way you think about what's going on. And all of a sudden, 50 years later, your kids – you know, are talking to their kids about your music. You've sadly gone to heaven, I hope, and they're listening to your they're listening to your music. But that music is constantly being generated. It, that has all kinds of cultural and historical questions. Yeah, I, and I actually, think- I, I argue that that's fairly fairly visionary. That there's something ver- something very interesting about that. Well, I think it's interesting the first time it's done, um, but the issue of. Uh, creating generative art that's imitative of human art, right? That's a whole category of artistic development in and of itself. And um, uh, my interest in generative art is that it's able to do something very alien and uncanny. It's able to do something unusual. Um, It's able to help us inhabit uh, or perceive at least some type of alien consciousness. But my, my work is not supposed to be human-like at all. The stuff that I do personally and the stuff that I'm interested in uh, viewing, reading, hacking on, you know, looking at the code of, um, that work is, uh, is also not um, producing human-like art. Uh, it's, it's, it's producing something that people can still understand uh, right, in some right. way, it resonates with culture in some way, uh, but it's very bizarre in other ways. Are the artists in generative art, are they typically from 
computing backgrounds mm. at first and then come and express themselves through that medium or yeah. do you find artists that have no background in computing just taking up that as well um, and then is there a, a difference <laughs> in style of output sure as well? sure no, i i think like neats yeah. and scruffies you know yeah. I, I feel like the <clears throat> artists would be more scruffy that didn't come from a computing background there's there's so mm. one of the things when ernest edmonds did all these interviews with artists and um he he found that they fell into these two categories mm. and one category these are people who uh, they could tell you the moment when the, the computer changed their artistic practice. So Manfred Moore was someone who was doing stuff, you know, related to abstract expressionism um, and, you know, talk with a musician, learned about computing. And there was this moment when it's like, this is it. I'm going to, I have to do this. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this type of work. Uh, however, a lot of other artists, and I would have to put myself in this category, are people for whom there's no such moment. They were always working with intertwined practices that were artistic and computational. They were always programming as they did their thing as an artist. I, am I That's right cool. in thinking that if it's not software... Is there any blend over to hardware that, that still has a definition to or connects to generative art? I'll give you a great example, a simple example. Sure. Um, Banksy, uh, I'm a big fan of, 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 of Banksy, although I really think that um, he'll probably be a lot more popular when he's dead because he's not getting out and talking about his art and most I mean, great he, artists had a chance. He might be dead, right? Well, he might be. Somehow I don't think he is, but, but who the hell knows? How about, knows? That? What how about, how about that announcement of death as the next Banksy artwork? And then we'll, yeah, and, and then be... we'll get to all read the obits. Right? <laughs> Guess what? I own a Banksy. I've been trying to sell it at that point, right? Or maybe I'll keep it another, for another year or whatever. Um, no, I, I, the thing that surprises me is that he's revolutionary. And it's, this is not a conversation about Banksy, but um, I believe that all great artists um, need in some way to begin that curation. Um, and, and it will help historians and other curators to talk about their art. And what I'm wondering is that piece, do you remember the exploding piece of art yeah. at the auction? It's the only, it's the <laughs> so, only interesting thing that's happened at Christie's anytime the self recently. The, the self-shredding piece, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the yeah. first bit is not generative art, but the process of, of writing any code to, to explode uh, or shred, I should sure. say, um, um, a piece of art, is that yeah. is that contained in the definition of generative okay. art? Well, this is – so. You can think about was that. Was that a code or was it like a, a physical thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously you can make a machine that does that. I mean, computers are machines. <laughs> so so if, you made a computer, day, yes. if you made a computer to do it, you were making a machine. Yeah. So, um, but you could also talk about, like, you know, um, the fork bomb uh, exhibited at the Whitney, right? Uh, this, uh, uh, you know, a very short piece of code that simply continually produces new processes, um, until the system is overwhelmed and um, and shuts down, right? So there's nothing interesting about that as a sequence of characters. Like there's that's not what's interesting about it. It's only interesting when it's put into the context of a software system, and that software system has to run on something. It's ultimately running on hardware. Um, so one of the things about this is that if you th if you think about generative art as algorithmic art, which you could think about it as, 
I think that's very limiting. I think you're missing out on all the aspects of messiness and materiality that have to do with this artwork being embodied in software systems, running on hardware. You know, for instance, I have uh, a piece called Round, and it's an infinite deterministic poem. And um, in part, it's based on some of the work that um, uh, Francois Morlet did. There's six paintings that Morlet did that are what I would call sort of visualizations of the digits of pi. And my poem is a textualization of the digits of pi. And so you can read it. Now, you may not want to read it. You may not find it's very sensible. Um, it's uh, somewhat repetitive in terms of the sound. So it has these aspects of uh, internal rhyme. The lines are of varying length and so forth. And um, as you run this program, as the pro I mean, the program runs itself, as the program runs, it becomes harder and harder to generate the next digit of pi. It takes longer and longer. It takes more and more memory. Um, so on a real computer, it will eventually crash. It's not going to actually work forever. Um, but also, as you start running this, um, your, your fan will turn on, like your computer will start to heat up, you know, your fan will turn on, and this piece of generative literature will highlight, I hope, for whoever is experiencing it, um, that you have a machine in front of you that uh, can actually get hot as it labors, as it works. And I made that software system run on hardware only if it's running on hardware. If it, if it were running off at, in, in Amazon Web Services, you wouldn't get to hear the fan. What does that make you feel when you have that piece of artwork, when you're observing that? Oh, I mean, for, well, uh, for me, it's a, it's a reminder that uh, the computer is a machine, that it is material, um, and it's a way of exhibiting that. Fair enough to mm -hmm. others and sharing that quality of the computer with others. So that's a system that has, you know, software and hardware as, as part of it. Um, I think very much. Yeah. It's like art, art, is, art means something to, to everyone differently, right? We all look, we all have that view. So, but your inspiration, I'm interested in this, this thing you've created. Is it really the inspiration behind it was to uh, just emphasize or show people that, that, this thing can can wear out a computer and that was that was that your design i mean it's you can i read it i read it aloud also i mean it produces a text that is um uh, so how did you assign words to each digit oh so that i got to choose uh just how like morally i chose whether you know white would be um, even or black would be odd or whatever else got you so that's the creative element to it that's got that's you. from my standpoint yes uh, I don't consider that I managed to completely eliminate or abstract myself, that I am a, a Zen Buddhist uh, obviating, you know, my own existence completely. Um, there's some of me that's, uh, that's in that process. Well, I would, I would argue that there's a running cost to your art. Do you supply the computer too if I buy it? There's, a, well, there's when, a maintenance bill. No, no, yeah. when, it's, when I exhibit, so it has been exhibited in a gallery, context and in that case yeah I, I you know i put a computer there mm -hmm. 
Right. So that's yeah. provided. And, but if you want to run it on your computer, I think that's that's good too, because then it tells you something about your computer. So would you say when we use like a Snapchat filter or an Instagram filter that like changes something on our face or something like that, and you get different parts of it as well, like uh, sometimes it can generate a result that's uh, specific to the person mm -hmm. Uh, taking the picture is that a form of generative art yeah so oh so the bunny ears oh it's cool i would say filters for snapchat um instagram zoom i don't know i guess my question i i, I wouldn't rule nah. it out i wouldn't rule it out my question is um whenever someone asks something like that you know my, i give you the stock response but i think a very useful yeah. response is to say, well, how does it help us think about this thing if we imagine it as generative art, right? Like, um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, like, if we think about the screensaver as generative art, that helps us. Um, the filters are okay. um, they do something autonomously, but they don't have that much autonomy. Um, mm -hmm. So, I would probably think to categorize it differently but uh but one thing that is important is you know not to um uh not to dismiss it because it's uh mass cultural and um uh not to dismiss it because mm -hmm. it takes an image and transforms it into another image how do we get people to recognize um, generative art as something distinct from from more mainstream art that they might think of? So most people would say sure, sure. art in the creative field and think of people like Jax, or, or, or and then and then in the traditional art they may think of a painter, right? Th then yep. you've got this, especially with people and, and, and NFTs and a sixty million dollar paint, and all of a sudden everyone's thinking, Jesus Christ. I can just get my iPad pen out now and start drawing and make money. So there, there's, you know, there, there are these vast interpretations of what art is, but how do, how do we shine a lens on, on generative art? And has there been any, and the two-part question, has there been any big use case examples of famous art that's either been sold or people that are using this medium uh, in, in a mainstream way? Is that a fair question, Nick? Sure. I'm not sure that art getting sold um uh it does get it in the news um uh there's a lot of issues there's a lot of institutional issues around what people see as art or not if you go into a bookstore and you go to the art section of that bookstore you're probably going to find almost everything there is about painting some of it about sculpture you might be able to find a book or two on video art, but even there, very little, right? Yeah. How much are you going to find? How much are you going to find on performance art? Yeah. Right. Very little. And I mean, music is its own section, mm. so music is isolated from from art in that mm. regard. I don't know that being collectible um, is the the only way forward or the major way forward for the recognition of what digital art is. So performance, performance art, for instance, you know, isn't collectible in a traditional way and conceptual art isn't collectible in a, in a traditional way. Nevertheless, um, there are these artistic practices that, um, 
that aren't collectible in the same way. They don't sell in the same way. Um, but uh, they've gotten some uh, purchase, some awareness. I would say people are more aware of performance art um, than they are of digital art, new media art, because right. people engaged in um, uh, you know, the promotion of computing um, don't care about the fact that there are poetic, aesthetic, artistic dimensions to what you can do as a programmer. Very often they do not care. I think of things that find them way, their ways into exhibitions and ultimately into big museums, you know, the Whitney, you know, MoMA, Met, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, that, you know, they tend to have one of a few things in common. They tend to have historical context, right? So they're like, this mm-hmm. is significant because it's Da Vinci and it's in the 1500s. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. There's only a handful of paintings. We've got to show it, right? And it happens to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. The other one is that for some reason, we we are interested in someone's career and what they've done, and or a particular thing they pioneered, uh, a particular brushstroke, and it's worth a lot yeah. of money, and so it, it finds its way in a museum. But I wonder if people are exhibiting this type of medium, if there's no value and there's not much history around it, mm-hmm. it's because it's performing a greater function, like it's telling us something or informing us about uh, you know the effects of computerization or just this opportunity to uh, discover life in a different dimension you know this curiosity with you know the example of the screensaver or, or the example of what you're doing with poetry right you know you, not anyone has to read it but there's a there's actually a purpose behind it there, right but there, there are other types of art right there's public art um yes where it's commissioned right it's placed outside yep. I, I think i mean one of the questions related to digital art and generative art is uh, that's an important question to sort of take a step back, like what's happening as far as it being for sale, which, there, you know, there has been a famous auction. Um, there have been famous shows in museums um, and galleries. Um, but uh, to take a step back from that, you can say generative art, well, should it be for sale at all? And should it be in museums at all? Right? Like, why, why doesn't it just run in your web browser? Like, everybody has a web browser. Um and uh, so, in fact, if you put it in a museum, um, and I saw, you know, the programmed exhibit fairly recently at the, at the Whitney, a beautiful exhibit of computational and television-based artwork, video, as well as um, software art. But one of the things for sure is when you have a flat panel with some software art running on it or a projection of software art running on it, you can't view source you can't see the source code there, right? You're not allowed to do that in the museum. Um, if it's in your browser, you can. And so actually, all of the generative unfolding artworks are free software. Uh, they are explicitly available for anyone who wants to study, modify, distribute. Uh, you can create your own project based on one of those works. Um, there's, there's restriction that you need to, um, share alike. You need to give back to the commons what you've done. Um, and you can't claim that the original authors, uh, the original artists, um, endorsed, you know, your particular project. Um, and the code is all available. You know, it's, it's up there. 
for you to look at. And so the, since, the medium of, since the medium of this work is code, we're talking about how the code is the paint, right, in this case. It's, well, if we stick it in a museum and show you the output of the system, but you can't actually you know, see the paint. You can't actually see the artwork. No, you can't. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's just the outcome. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, you're yeah, see, you're yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. the back page of the book, but that's it. Yeah. So, um, so maybe the you know, uh, maybe the museum and the gallery is not um, the ultimate place for this type of work. Even though there have been many okay. great shows, and it's brought uh, a lot of this work to the attention of the public. What I feel like what Martin was trying to get at is. Is there an example of a generative art hit? One way you'd categorize that in the art world is something that sold for millions or some prestigious artist that isn't around anymore or something like that. Or we talk about Banksy with notoriety like that. In the gener yes, generative art doesn't have to be given a monetary value for it to be considered important. But is there one that lives on our browser that took over the world at one point in time? I don't think there's an example that sort of comes to the, it's, there's not like, you know, the Damien Hurst shark. <laughs> of, or, the, or, or, the, or the Salvatore Mundi or something. <laughs> right. Of, of, uh, of computer generated yeah, yeah. art. Um, right. Uh, maybe right now, but there's things that are very popular. Uh, uh, and many of the examples I think do come from uh, more uh, popular culture or mass culture like the screensaver or John Conway's game of life, for instance. Right. So right. that's an, that's right. an example of something. Um, but um, yeah, there's, there's work. Um, mm -hmm. um, I don't want, I don't want to start dropping names because I'll drop some people's names and I'll, uh, I mean, and then you'll miss, you'll miss them and they'll be like, what the hell? And, and Nick? Yeah. I mean, look at the, you know, I say, yeah, look at the exhibit. We've got, we've got people and the, the exhibit has people who are not, actually the usual suspects of uh, generative okay. art in, uh, in most cases. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'd say more recently, because we're talking about the social function of art, we said one of the things art does um, is it gives us an opportunity to, um, uh, to get together in a context in which we, um, I mean, we could always um, go out for drinks, throw a party or whatever else, but it gives us an opportunity to get together and think about things aesthetically and think about things in their relationship to our culture and talk about work. And so, for instance, um, you know, Casey Rees had a recent show of generative art called Social Codes, and it had an art opening online. And I was able to attend this art opening, and um, uh, he had people in the show that he curated you know, from around the world. Um, he lives in Los Angeles. I don't see him in person very much, and I, you know, wouldn't have uh, been at the opening if it were an in-person opening. Um, so I consider that a successful outcome. And generative unfolding similarly had an opening mm -hmm. where people were able to join from all over, and the artists, uh, many of whom I had not met before, you know, I got to talk to um, by video, face to face. Um, so uh, that's not the direct answer to your question in that, you know, there's a mega hit uh, generative artwork, but um, it does address, I think, the success mm -hmm. of these pieces. Is there a way to view generative art 
you know when you go if you view art in a museum you know you've got there's a, a way they present it so it's the best way to observe it is there a way to do you have to have the best screens for it to attend these openings well i think the, the best, best way is uh to be able to access the code and to be explicitly allowed to modify the code to change things about not just the parameters but uh even um how it is computationally uh these artworks function you know in most cases yeah. um uh it's it's a it's an unusual uh mix um and aesthetically uh visually very diverse and many of the pieces are very interactive um and so I'd say from my standpoint, it's more that there's shows that are meaningful. Um, uh, Kate Voss Gallery um, in Zurich had a show called The Game of Life. I'm just looking at The Game of Life now. I've never heard of it. It looks so interesting. So, uh, so these, are, these are, you know, I think these are some of the classics but but of course no museum owns that right that's that's uh that's that's actually uh and the, the source code is definitely available for that right that's a uh and it's been re-implemented i mean that that is yeah, you can play it right here in my safari oh yeah you can you can you can run that if you think doom runs on a you know runs on your camera and on a lot of platforms i mean the game of life even more so even more so yeah. It, 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 it seems to me to come back to your question, Nick, about perhaps uh, museums or, or perhaps collectibles is perhaps not one particular dimension to, to necessarily think about um, where this might end up. And, and ultimately, museums may not be the best place to exhibit it. But it seems to me that something like this, an algorithm that's strongly uh, tech centric, that has to be given a life of its own in some way in order to generate uh -huh. itself, deserves to live out in the ether. Sure, sure. I think, I mean, in defense of museums and galleries as spaces for the exhibition of this work, um, they're great places to talk about it. So when I go with some friends, I mean, when I go to an opening or when I go with, you know, some friends, then uh, physically being at a space, going to the exhibit, um, or having a curator or artist who's able to show the work to me there, um, that's great. But Martin, you were asking about the sort of question of how at MIT, um, which does have a reputation for um, uh, being interested educationally, maybe in the bottom line and so forth, right? How, yeah, like, uh, absolutely. How, how do you get people to uh, find things like generative art uh, compelling, right? Well, so, I mean, MIT also recognizes the value of basic research. I would say most often in the sciences and um, uh, it's not always easy for basic research to be recognized. I think my colleagues in the sciences have their own challenges and difficulties. So I, I won't, I won't pretend that they don't face any, any problems. I think um, engineering is king at uh, MIT in a lot of ways. Uh, but people recognize that we need to keep on exploring and thinking and devising theories, uh, building models and testing them, uh, independent of the particularities of um, how to do engineering 
or how to accomplish the immediate goals that we recognize. Um, so from that standpoint, I don't think generative art is uh, basic research. I don't think it needs to be characterized as research. Some people do talk about artistic research. Some people have this uh, concept, which is fine. But um, I think that the artistic areas of exploration that uh, we can get into through work in generative art and the ways that generative art can show what the possibilities of computation are, are quite valid, quite important, should be happening alongside other types of computational work. So we shouldn't exile them to say, oh, you know, uh, go, okay. let, let, the art, yeah. let the art school do that. But here we're a tech school, so we're going to do the technology. No, I think we need to understand a lot of different things about technology. Uh, that's my perspective, and students are often enthusiastic. I, I wonder what, what will turn this subject into something that appears or could look uh, too scholastic for the average person. If we were to fast forward 10 years or 15 years, mm -hmm. what might we expect from generative art? Uh, and I'll give you, I'm going to throw a couple of things sure. out there. One of them is that, uh, is that we detool ourselves. And just like, um, you know, we went to plain English in programming, right? We went through 4GL, right? Right away to open GL, and we didn't all of a sudden. It's not that the complexity went away, but the languages, and we use things like frameworks to try and make it easier. We try to get more people into programming. Uh, now, I'd argue that software is eating the world, and that most people want some kind of career in technology and often software. Mm -hmm. But could we see a detooling or, or, or just a wider acceptance of the arts, and more people get to do what you just said a level of programming? Or is it that we could see that? Actually, the different applications for generative art uh, 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 you know, proliferate to other kind of byproducts or, or functions. Or is it that we're going to use other mediums? Uh, uh, you know, for instance, if we need to have a physical presence, then we'll use the marketing of, of a festival or a, or a, or a museum. Uh, we'll use NFTs sure. if we want to look at ownership and all these different things that might shine a light on generative art. What, yeah. I mean, if someone's out there with their crystal ball thinking about generative art, what would you like to see or do you think yeah, might happen? Yeah. Well, look, thinking 10 or 15 years out, what I'd say about the arts, right, is everybody writes. Mm -hmm. Everyone has written a poem, a story. Everybody does that growing up, Right. You may do it better or worse, but you have the experience. You've tried it out. Mm -hmm. Everybody has sung. Mm -hmm. you, you may be better or worse. You may not be able to stay in key, on tune. Okay. You yeah, want I mean, everybody's danced, right? Everybody has drawn. Everybody has drawn something. Everybody has drawn something, right? So when you talk about how is it that people are able to appreciate visual art, well, part of how they appreciate visual art is that they've, they've drawn something. They've made some visual art. They went on the refrigerator, at least, you know, or wh wh whatever else, um, the aga or wherever you put it. <laughs> the aga. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a really good one. But, Look, Jack is completely but, confused by it. <laughs> no, I know I what that you is. Do. I know what that is. It slipped me. And now I, I see where you're at. That was very good, <laughs> Professor Nick. Now I can see. But, uh, but you know, so, so the idea, I think really fundamentally, if people want to 
make this one of the artistic practices amongst other artistic practices, you know, they, people have to program. And in fact, a huge, huge number of people programmed in the late yes. 1970s, early 1980s, uh, millions of people. And, and yeah. people didn't learn it because they were doing Google Summer of Code or because they wanted to do STEM education or they want, they, they just tried it out just for the sake, then they, you know, just for the sake of trying it out and often for artistic sorts of purposes, you know, uh, make up like type in a little poetry generator or a little version of Eliza, the chatterbot or, you know, uh, a, a, a little sort of game. I mean, um, do you think speaking about today's young people that appreciate art, and the rise of street art and all and that kind of side of things and and how that you know you look at instagram artists that have become big and have huge cult followings like and generate value off of hype rather than perhaps the the processes mm -hmm. that go into something do you know what i mean like it's it's hype it's jet like alec monopoly springs to mind in all of this right it has a different flavor it's it feels a bit more of a of a sharing platform for other things to happen perhaps it's a social construct something for us to look at you know something just for the sake of existing do you think then it will it will catch fire in the future in the same way if you if it doesn't have that air exclusivity that things that nowadays things need to have do you know what i mean yeah i mean one of the places where you see um work that is fundamentally it's a software system. It involves computation. Sometimes it's made by an individual mm -hmm. or a small team. Um, is in digital gaming. Now those systems don't run on their own for the most part. There's some exceptions, like um, mm -hmm. like everything. Um, for instance, uh, James O'Reilly's uh, game, um, where if you just let go of the mm -hmm. controller. It'll wait there for a moment, and then it'll start playing itself, <laughs> which is which is great. Uh, that's it. It's an it's, it's an amazing, cool. it's an amazing game Crazy. actually. Um, there are uh, there are examples of this more um, mainstream sort of you know software system, computer art, um, generative work is involved in certain cases. We're, we're already getting to a point, though, where with digital games, um, there's now a very strict sort of policing and defining of what digital games are. They have to go through a certain channel. They're sold on Steam um, or else they're made for consoles and they get pressed onto discs less and less often these days. Le yeah, less yeah. and less, yeah. Uh, and, but, so anyway, so you know, digital games are very well defined. This is what they are. Um, and of course, the art world has its own institutions as to what you do to define that stuff. Um, so it's it's hard to make these these connections and things that are that are in the gap. And um, there are people like uh, Tracy Fullerton working with Bill Viola, you know, uh, who's quite famous and excellent <laughs> as a video artist, mm -hmm. to create the Night Journey. Right. So there's something that is a video game like interactive experience. It's not computer generative art, but it's something that bridges the art world and the video game world in a certain way. And then, um, you know, Tracy Fullerton has another game about um, 
Thoreau's <coughs> experience in Walden, um, which is right. a non-conventional, um, you know, sort of experience. I, I think there's a lot of things happening. I don't think many of them, uh, they're not in academia in any way. They did bachelor's degrees, but, you know, their, their involvement is a lot scrappier uh, with this type of stuff. So I think mm-hmm. th- there's a huge number of different players and um, each of them bring different things to the table. I would argue that there's a correlation for generative art with prosperity, with productivity, um, you know, with pro- and I'll, I'll tell you for why. And ultimately it's progress because of one thing, greater application of programming. Right. So there's more programming. There's a number of things that are happening in the world. Right. You know, we're likely to see prosperity and productivity. But what could we see directly that's not correlative that's come as a result of generative art? So, for instance, it, it, it seems to me that it could serve as a very different way to coin a term, you know, think different, to solve problems a different way, a uh, different way to look at code, um, a different way to feel inspired a different way to look at life. I wonder whether these kind of skills or practices could come from more people being immersed in, in, in generative art. Uh, I mean, you've answered your own question. We both know that that's the case. And, um, (laughs) and so let me ask, no, 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 let let me ask. I mean, let me ask uh, either of you or both of you. um, If you think there's a distinction between an artist and a designer, which some people don't, um, how would you distinguish those two? Uh, typically a designer would be something for function. Yeah. See, I, in its broadest definition, I don't, I don't distinguish the difference. Okay. Right? So yeah. Martin, you've got like the John Maida view of artist and yes. designer. And um, Jax has, I think, a more traditional idea that, um, which Charles Eames, I think, would also say that the designer has a problem um, and the artist doesn't have a problem. So you could, whether you're doing industrial design or graphic design or whatever else, uh, you can successfully solve the problem. Um, but uh, the artist um, uh, doesn't have to, but also can't, right? And yeah. so one of the things there is there's types of, uh, there are approaches that are appropriate in both cases. Like you might want to quickly come up with uh, 20 different ideas if you're a designer and you might also do the same thing if you're an artist, but ultimately you have to solve the problem uh, from the design standpoint and from the art Mm -hmm, standpoint, mm -hmm. um, your purpose is to explore and you might um, find a sort of problem along the way. But I like to say that in the arts and humanities, you know, rather than answering questions, our job is to generate new questions. Right. Um, And the whole idea of this uh, exploratory programming for the arts and humanities is that we don't start from a specification the way you say, this is how an ATM works or a cash point. This is how a cash point works. Now write the code, implement the cash point. Leaving that aside, um, we also need to explore. We also need to use computation to think in new ways. So programming and computation is a way of thinking. It's a means of thinking about the world. And there is the exploitative thinking where we know what we are going for and we exploit our existing knowledge to reach the goal. But there's also the exploratory thinking. Do you envisage someone like myself owning generative art um, like in the future? How about producing it? 
for myself? Yeah, actually, producing it is a better question. I would, I would, I'm much more interested in the question of will you produce it than in the question of will you own it. So my next book, Exploratory Programming for the Arts and Humanities, second edition, is coming out in a month, in just under one month. It is going to be uh, open access, freely available book. It's in print, so you can buy a print copy, which I think is a great way to learn to program. Uh, just like in the old days where you were able to take your um, mm -hmm. manual or your uh, programming book and open it up and stick it next to your computer. That's how I did it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, the old days. This book is designed for that. This book is designed to do that. My own concerns aren't so much about models of ownership, but more models of engagement. And I'd say if you want to really understand what generative artwork is and you want to um, think about it and appreciate it deeply, you should be a programmer, not a professional programmer, not somebody who has a computer science degree or works for Google or Microsoft or something, but someone who's able to use computation, someone who knows what iteration is, you know, what's a for loop. What's a function? Um, what uh, types of a variable are? Things like that. True basics. Um, and once you do that, you're able to move ahead in a powerful way, um, thinking about and working with computation and exploring it as an artist if that's a direction you wish to take. Guys, thanks for listening. We're now 10 shows into our journey to learn new things across life, business, and art with intellectually curious people at the top of their field. I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are. We've spoken to entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, journalists, composers, and we're only getting started. The whole point of this is to engage with you, our audience, and bring you along for the ride. So head to our website to sign up to our mailing list. It's jacksandmartinshow.com or WhatsApp your comments to the producers. All the details are below. See you next time. Roll safe. <laughs>